0: CHAPTER THREE PART THREE OF VICTORIAN LITERATURE This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson Victorian Literature by Clement Shorter The Historians Part 3 1795-1881 to Thomas Carlyle was born at Eckelfaken in Dumfriesshire on the fourth of December seventeen ninety five His father was a stonemason at whose death Carlyle thus tenderly wrote in his diary, quote, "I owe him much more than existence. I owe him a noble, inspiring example. It was he exclusively that determined on educating me, that from his small, hard-earned funds sent me to school." And college, and made me whatever I am and may become. Let me not mourn for my father, let me do worthily of him. So shall he still live, even here in me, and his worth plant itself honorably forth into new generations. End quote. From Annan Grammar School, the young Carlyle went to Edinburgh University, where he became a voracious reader, although never a great classical scholar. He then took the post of mathematical tutor at Annan school and afterwards at Kerkuddy Where he was friendly with Edward Irving afterwards the famous preacher Disgusted with this life he flung up his appointment and determined to study for the law For some time he eat out a scanty subsistence in Edinburgh by writing biographies for Brewster's encyclopedia It was at this period that he obtained some measure of mental and moral stimulus from his German studies goethe opened a new world to him he began to study german in eighteen nineteen induced thereto by madame de stael's interesting account of the german poets and philosophers goethe was seventy-five years old when in eighteen twenty four he received from Carlyle an english translation of wilhelm meister with a letter saying four years ago when i read your faust among the mountains of my native scotland I could not but fancy I might one day see you and pour out before you as before a father the woes and wanderings of a heart whose mysteries you seem so thoroughly to comprehend and could so beautifully represent two years later. Carlyle sent Goethe his life of Schiller, and once again he expressed his intense devotion to one whose voice came to me from afar with counsel and help in my utmost need for if he continues i have been delivered from darkness into any measure of light if i know aught of myself and my destination it is to the study of your writings more than to any other circumstance that i owe this it is to you more than any other man that i should always thank and reverence with the feeling of a disciple to his master nay of a son to his spiritual father in the meantime carlyle had married jane welsh the daughter of a doctor in haddington and had settled at the lonely farmhouse of craigenputtock in Dumfriesshire. there he was visited by emerson and there he remained for six years before removing to london not only had carlyle then translated wilhelm meister and written the life of schiller but he had made numerous translations from musaeus Tieck, and richter and had published essays on these and other german authors jean-paul richter had a peculiar attraction for him, and there can be no doubt that Carlyle owed his extraordinary style, in some degree, to his study of the German humorist. The forty-seven years of Carlyle's London life, 1834 to 1881, were years of incessant literary activity. The thirty volumes which came from his pen during that time not only secured for him a permanent place amongst the historians, biographers, and essayists of our literature, but they kindled for him a glow of intense personal enthusiasm amongst the best of his contemporaries such as perhaps no other english author has enjoyed at his death on the fifth of february eighteen eighty one the world knew carlyle apart from his books as a man of simple tastes content in spite of the wealth which literary success had brought to reside amidst unostentatious surroundings ever ready to help the distressed and needy refusing a title and the like official recognitions and carrying out to the letter the reverence earnestness and unobtrusive manliness which he had inculcated in his writings devotedly attached to his wife whom he described on her tombstone as having unweariedly forwarded him as none else could in all of good that he did or attempted and in short worthy of the address presented to him on his eightieth birthday by nearly all of the men of literary and scientific eminence in england including amongst others lord tennyson and george eliot robert browning and professor huxley a whole generation has elapsed they said since you described for us the hero as a man of letters we congratulate you and ourselves on the spacious fullness of years which has enabled you to sustain this rare dignity amongst mankind in all its possible splendour and completeness the publication of mr froude's nine volumes of memorials caused a considerable revulsion of feelings. the carlyle of these letters and reminiscences appeared to be over censorious in his estimate of his contemporaries not too considerate of his relations with his wife and however admirable he might find contentment in richter or hayne not content without much murmuring to accept a life of restricted means. To give too much emphasis to this view of Carlyle's character is to ignore certain peculiarities of Mr. Froude's biographical and historical style, to which reference has already been made. It will suffice to point out that there are other sources of information about Carlyle than the books of his accredited biographer. Sir Henry Taylor, Mrs. Oliphant, Mr. Charles Elliot Norton Mrs. Gilchrist and other friends of Carlyle's later life have published much additional matter and have shown as it were the other side of the shield To Sir Henry Taylor who knew him well he seemed the most faithful and true-hearted of men And from many sources we learn that mr. Froude's picture is not that of the true Carlyle That he was not a selfish husband that his married life was not unhappy that he was not altogether dumb to the heroes living whilst eloquent over heroes dead and that in spite of many faults he was a noble high-minded man a kingly soul as longfellow called him writing in his diary during his second visit to england in eighteen forty seven emerson says carlyle and his wife live on beautiful terms their ways are very engaging and in her bookcase all his books are inscribed to her as they came from year to year each with some significant lines the letters which carlyle wrote to his wife at the time she lost her mother are most touchingly affectionate this is what she wrote to a friend at that time in great matters he is always kind and considerate but these little attentions which we women attach so much importance to he was never in the habit of rendering to any one And now the desire to replace the irreplaceable makes him as good in little things as he used to be in great. And to Carlyle himself she writes God keep you, my dear husband, and bring you safe back to me. The house looks very desolate without you, and my mind feels empty too. I expect with impatience the letter that is to fix your return. On another occasion, writing to her husband's mother, she says, You have others behind, and I have only him, only him in the whole wide world to love me and take care of me, poor little wretch that I am. Not but that numbers of people love me, after their fashion, far more than I deserve, but then his fashion is so different from theirs, and seems alone to suit the crotchety creature that I am and then her pride in her husband is well exemplified by an experience related in a letter to him which shows also how wide and deep is that mysterious impersonal influence of great authors on men who are totally unknown to them a man of the people mounted the platform and spoke a youngish intelligent-looking man who alone of all the speakers seemed to understand the question and to have feelings as well as notions about it He spoke with a heart eloquence that left me warm. I never was more affected by public speaking a Sudden thought struck me this man would like to know you. I would give him my address in London I borrowed a piece of paper and handed him my address When he looked at it he started as if I had sent a bullet into him caught my hand and said oh it is your husband mr carlyle has been my teacher and master i have owed everything to him for years and years i felt it a credit to you really to have had a hand in turning out this man was prouder of that heart tribute to your genius than any mount of reviewers praise or aristocratic invitations to dinner It is because the spirit which breathes in the word of this young workman has been the guiding moral force of numbers of men and women in all stations of life During the last 60 years that I have devoted so much space to Carlyle It is of the greatest importance to literature that the man whose eloquent preaching of justice sincerity and reverence has turned the hearts of thousands of his fellow men towards nobility and simplicity of life should not himself have been out of harmony with all that he taught the world says thackeray's gifted daughter has pointed its moral finger of late at the old man in his great old age accusing himself in the face of all and confessing the overpowering irritations which the suffering of a lifetime had laid upon him and upon her he loved that old caustic man of deepest feeling with an ill-temper and a tender heart and a racking imagination speaking from the grave and bearing unto it that cross of passionate remorse which few among us dare to face seems to some of us now a figure nobler and truer a teacher greater far than in the days when all his pain and love and remorse were still hidden from us all of the reminiscences which excited so much criticism on account of their references to persons still living Carlyle wrote on the last page I still mainly mean to burn this book before my own departure But feel that I shall always have a kind of grudge to do it and an indolent excuse Not yet wait any day that can be done and that it is possible the thing may be left behind me legible to interested survivors friends only i will hope and with worthy curiosity not unworthy in which event i solemnly forbid them each and all to publish this bit of writing as it stands here and warn them that without fit editing no part of it should be printed nor so far as i can order shall ever be and that the fit editing of perhaps nine-tenths of it will after i am gone have become impossible the only editing which mr deemed fit was the omission of this paragraph from his edition of the work and yet to read with the worthy curiosity of which he speaks of his love for father and wife of his kindly solicitude for brothers and sisters whom he constantly assisted is to make him nearer and dearer to those who care to remember that he was after all but human carlyle spoke with too little kindness it must be owned of wordsworth and Coleridge and lamb because he saw only the palpable weaknesses of their characters and was blinded by forbidding Externals to the sterling worth of these great men But he loved Emerson and Tennyson and Ruskin and he profoundly revered Goethe who after all was the only one of his contemporaries Who could take rank anywhere near him? Carlyle recognized that Goethe was incomparably his superior in every way and he was as matthew arnold calls him the greatest poet of the present age and the greatest critic of all ages the one man of Transcendental genius whom Europe has produced since Dante and Shakespeare To have first led England to appreciate Goethe is not the least of Carlyle's many services to his country To have acted as an inspiring and helpful prophet is perhaps his greatest sartor resartus first appeared in fraser's magazine for eighteen thirty three where it met with but scanty recognition and indeed half ruined the editor whose subscribers anxiously asked when the tailor sketches were coming to an end it is surely something more than a passing fashion in literature which leads us now to take up these well-worn pages with so much of tenderness and sympathy there is in man he says a higher than love of happiness he can do without happiness, and instead thereof find blessedness Was it not to preach forth the same higher that sages and martyrs, the poet and the priest, in all times have spoken and suffered, bearing testimony through life and through death of the godlike that is in man, and how in the godlike only has he strength and freedom? How can it be said that Carlyle did not love humanity? when we read the lines in which he expresses reverence for the toil-worn craftsman that with earth-made implement laboriously conquers the earth and makes her man's venerable to me he continues is the hard hand crooked coarse wherein notwithstanding lies a cunning virtue indefeasibly royal as of the sceptre of this planet Venerable too is the rugged face, all weather tanned, besoiled, with its rude intelligence, for it is the face of a man living manlike. Oh, but the more venerable for thy rudeness, and even because we must pity as well as love thee. Hardly entreated, brother, for us was thy back so bent, for us were thy straight limbs and fingers so deformed. Thou wert our conscript on whom the lot fell, and fighting our battles wert so marred. It is impossible to exaggerate the effect upon the younger minds of his age of Carlyle's stirring words inciting to worthy and ever worthier effort Due to the duty which lies nearest to thee which thou knowest to be a duty in all situations out of the pit of Tophet, Wherein a living man has stood there is actually a prize of quite infinite value placed within his reach namely a duty for him to do this highest of gospel forms the basis and worth of all other gospels whatever brother he says elsewhere thou hast possibility in thee for much the possibility of writing on the eternal skies the record of a heroic life is not every man god be thanked a potential hero the measure of a nation's greatness of its worth under the sky to god and to man is not the quantity of bullion it has realized but the quantity of heroisms it has achieved of noble pieties and valiant wisdoms that were in it and still are in it little less valuable than sartor resartus is past and present which was published in eighteen forty three the reverence and delicacy with which it touches the monasticism of a bygone age are as remarkable as the prophetic vision with which it deals with the social problems of our latter-day life State-aided emigration cooperation and national education are some of the many changes advocated here and elsewhere Not till the latter-day pamphlets 1850 did Carlyle become an eloquent advocate of force as a guide in politics thereby alienated John Stuart Mill and many of his old friends his language then seemed to degenerate into mere shrieking and scolding the world must be governed he declared by men of heroic mould who know what is good for the inferior natures around them let such inferior natures if need be be scourged into silence parliaments he spoke of contemptuously as talking-shops and his sympathies went out heartily to governor eyre at the time of the jamaica riots and to the southern states at the time of the american civil war an admiration for heaven-sent heroes had always been strong in Carlyle, although it certainly had not its after meaning when he wrote in early life not brute force but only persuasion and faith are the kings of this world in heroes and hero-worship a course of lectures delivered in 1840 he had waxed eloquent over mohammed luther and napoleon and three years earlier in 1837 he had published in his french revolution a brilliant eulogy of mirabeau his vindication of cromwell was brought about perhaps mainly by his appreciation of the protector's high-handed resoluteness and his life of frederick the second of prussia was the apology for a man who was the very embodiment of despotic ideals but quite apart from carlyle's worth as a moral teacher or as a controversialist his place in literature is very high his short biography of schiller was an epoch-making book because of the influence it has exercised upon the study of german literature but it bears little evidence of the genius of its author and in consequence of the abundance of schiller correspondence subsequently brought to light it has been superseded by the biographies of Peleski and dunser Carlyle's life of john sterling is however a work of great power a kind of prose lycidas which like the great elegy has rescued from oblivion a man in whom the world would soon have ceased to be interested Carlyle, again, was an essayist of striking individuality. Few literary sketches are more picturesque than his Count Cagliostro and the Diamond Necklace, and the essays on Johnson and Burns are models of generous human insight. With literary insight, however, Carlyle was not too well endowed, at least when purely imaginative literature was concerned, and he once expressed the opinion that Shakespeare had better have written in prose. It is part of my creed he wrote to Emerson the only poetry is history could we tell it right His method of telling it gives him a place by himself among historians a place so singular that it is impossible to classify him Carlyle's French Revolution said John Stuart Mill is one of those productions of genius Which is above all rule and is a law to itself the deathbed of Louis the fifteenth the taking of the bastille and the execution of danton are never to be forgotten descriptions and the poetical passage which follows the relation of the bloody horrors of seventeen eighty nine cannot be too often quoted o evening sun of july how at this hour thy beams fall slant on reapers amid peaceful woody fields on old women spinning in cottages on ships far out in the silent main on balls at the orangery of versailles where high rouge dames of the palace are even now dancing with double-jacketed hussar offices and also on this roaring hell-porch of a hotel de ville the scientific history of the french revolution has yet to be written and even to appreciate carlyle's prose epic adequately we should know something of mignet thiers morse stevens and von sybel but neither the accumulation of fresh facts. Nor a philosophical deduction from such facts can impair the value of Carlyle's work. That, in spite of all his fire and passion, Carlyle could delineate character with most judicial fairness may be demonstrated by turning to Mr. John Morley's essays on Robespierre and the other revolutionists, and observing how his calm and unprejudiced intellect has pronounced judgments in every way endorsing Carlyle's. Carlyle's Cromwell has less attraction for us to-day than the french revolution but the service to historical study was even greater Opinions will always differ as to the wisdom of the protector's policy and the righteousness of his deeds But since the publication of these letters and speeches edited with the care of an antiquarian and the genius of a poet Cromwell's sincerity and genuine piety have been unimpugned there are others beside Mr. Froude who esteem the history of Frederick the Second, Carlyle's greatest work. The humour of the book is wonderful for Carlyle is the greatest humorist since Stern, and nowhere is this humour more conspicuous than in Frederick. The splendid portraits of all the most important figures in the eighteenth century fix themselves indelibly in the memory, and it is even said that German soldiers study the art of war from the description of Frederick's campaigns. Nevertheless the book has much in it that is unsatisfying to Englishmen Frederick and his father could not easily excite the hero worshiping inclinations of a free people and even Carlyle became Disillusioned as he proceeded with his task and finally admitted that Frederick was not worth the trouble he had given to him He commenced it as a history of Frederick the Great and concluded it as a history of Frederick called the Great carlyle is surely the greatest figure in our modern literature he wrote no poetry worth consideration it is true his verse would long since have been forgotten had it not been for his effectiveness as a prose writer but although we are accustomed to the claim for poetry that it ranks higher than prose it must be conceded that in victorian literature this is not the case and that carlyle's enormous personality his capacity for influencing others for good and ill have made him the greatest moral and intellectual force of his age to him we owe the indifference to mere political shibboleths the lull in party warfare which is the note of our age he gave no definite answer to any question but he gave us the impetus which led others to seek for solutions his literary influence on froude and mill mr ruskin and mr lecky and numbers of others was tremendous the place which was occupied by swift in the eighteenth century is held by Carlyle in the nineteenth and though every line that he has written should cease to be read he will still be remembered as the greatest of literary figures in an age of great men of letters end of chapter three part three